who has doubts and he's just kind of talking things out with God and by the end of it he realizes, oh man, I was being a fool. <laughs> and yet he says, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Is Jesus your best friend today? If he's not, why wait? <laughs> what I want to do before we dive into our message today is actually spend some time just praying for a closer walk with Jesus. And, um, you know, I, I would encourage you to find somebody that's next to you, grab a hand, grab a shoulder, and let's pray for one another. You know, there may be someone sitting right next to us that, whose walk with God is struggling and faltering, and your prayer today may just be the thing that lifts her up, that lifts him up. And so, would you please um, find somebody next to you? If, if you'd rather just uh, pray silently by yourself, that's fine too. But if you could, just find somebody next to you, and let's pray for each other's walk with God. Let's take a, a few minutes for this, and we'll get into our study. Into my heart, into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus, come in today, come in to stay, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Father, this is our prayer today. You've promised in Jeremiah 24, verse 7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I would be their God and they would be my people, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Lord, that's a promise we want to take to the bank. <laughs> would you please give us a heart to know you? Would you please give us a walk that is closer to you today than it was yesterday? Lord, we're not just praying this prayer for ourselves. We're praying for, we're praying for those that maybe uh, we wish were here with us. 
um, whether because of sickness of body or sickness of heart, God, I pray that you would give them a heart to know you too. Thank you that you are faithful to your promise today and that when we pray these things, it's, this is something that we can truly lean upon and rest in. And now as we open up the Bible together, we are praying to hear a word from you. Lord, you know the kinds of uh, uh, states of mind that we are coming to you with today. And so we want to lay aside whatever burden or distraction may get in the way of us really hearing from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would truly fill each one of us today, that you would send us the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth, that the same spirit who inspired people to write these words would also be the same spirit who instructs us in these words. Please, Lord, this is what we long for. We know you want to give it. In Jesus' name, let the family say, amen. Amen. All right. Take your Bibles, if you will. We're going to the book of Malachi. Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. Last week, we started this, uh, this mini-series, Giving God Our Best, and today it's Giving God Our Best, part two. And I must admit to you, earlier this week, so I was uh, just kind of poring over the, the passage, chapter two, for our study today. I must admit that there was one point where I looked up and I said to Debbie, Malachi is challenging. <laughs> and there are several reasons for that. One, there are some things linguistically, you know, the Hebrew language and stuff, it, it's just, what? You know, it's, it's difficult. And so if you compare English translations, you'll actually find different kind of renderings, uh, different sentiments. Um, the other reason is because the messages themselves, the content, this is like in-your-face, <laughs> listen-up kind of stuff. And uh, if you know my personality, that's not my personality. Anyway, so Malachi is challenging, and I just want to admit that, um, that as we read this, I pray that you would hear the burden of the Lord, right? Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, it starts out, this is the burden of the Lord. And if you remember from last week, uh, Malachi is writing to the post-exilic remnant, in other words, these are people who have come out of Babylon already. They are coming now to restore Jerusalem. They've actually been in Jerusalem. They've been rebuilding the walls. It's been a period of revival, restoration, things like that. But at this point where Malachi finds the people of God, he finds the remnant in need of revival. He finds the remnant kind of coasting in autopilot, so to speak. And so Malachi's word is a strong word. In chapter 1, you remember last week, we found that instead of giving God their best, the people were actually giving God their leftovers. When they were coming to worship God, when they were coming to bring their offerings and their sacrifices, they wouldn't bring uh, their best sacrifices. They would actually bring their blind sacrifices, their lame sacrifices. And as one verse in chapter 1 says, their stolen sacrifices. Like it wasn't even their own stuff. And so they, they weren't, for some reason, they had lost sight of the fact that God has given us his best. And somewhere along the line, anytime we lose sight of how God has given us his best, we end up giving God second best. Second rate worship. And so now we're going into chapter two. 
And as we move into chapter 2, the question that kind of lingers is, where in the world did this come from? How is it that this remnant, how is it that the post-exilic community is now actually uh, in this state of mind? The people's callousness to the love of God. Remember, God had to remind them in chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, right? In chapter 1, verse 2, you see it. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then what is the people's response? Really? How have you loved us? Blah, blah, blah. You know, God is like, are you serious? The very fact that you exist is evidence of my enduring love for you. And so the people had become callous to the love of God. But you've got to ask yourself, how did they get there? How did they get there? In chapter 2, as you start studying chapter 2, we're actually going to find that God is pointing out two factors, two factors of infidelity, that lay beneath the surface, almost like undercurrents for their leftover worship, okay? So here we go. Are you ready to kind of peel the onion, so to speak, and see what's behind the curtain? Like I said, it's challenging stuff. So here we go. Malachi chapter 2. Buckle your safety belts. It's time. All right. He starts by addressing the leaders. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. Okay, I'm reading from the New King James today. It says, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. God is going to start addressing the condition of the people as it starts with the leaders. This is significant because leaders set the tone. Leaders ought to set this tone of spiritual example. They they ought to be the ones to to demonstrate what it's like to give God their best But how did the leaders lose their way? Notice in verse 1, Now, O priests, this commandment is for you. Verse 2, If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to where? To heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. The leaders the spiritual examples, the priests, the ones who are facilitating worship for the people, they had not taken God's commandment, God's instruction to heart. In other words, they hadn't internalized it. They had kept it at arm's length as something that's just on the external, merely going through the motions. Can anybody resonate with that? Where you know what you're supposed to do and you simply just content yourself with doing it. Check. They hadn't taken it to heart. And God uses some strong words. He's not content to just let this slide. In fact, in verse 3, he gets really graphic, and I'm not sure I want to read it out loud. Okay? You can scan with your... My version kind of puts it lightly. Other versions out there might not. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. This is actually talking about, like when priests brought the sacrifices, they would actually, um, they would gut the animals, you know, the, the innards of the animal, and, and throw it away and discard it. But here God is saying, look, I'm going to bring that right back up to your face. It's intense. God needs to do something drastic in order to get the attention of the leaders who have gone so far off. What's going on? The refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Verse 4, then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi 
may continue. Do you guys remember who Levi was? Not the one who makes your jeans, okay? <laughs> this is Levi. This is one of the sons of Jacob. Um, when it came to the tribes of Israel, the tribes of Israel were named after the sons of Jacob. In Exodus chapter 32, God made a special covenant with Levi. In Exodus chapter 32, do you remember when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments? He finds a scene that is not pleasing to him or to God. Do you remember what's going on? They're worshiping an idol that they made with their own jewelry. Okay? They're, they're worshiping this golden calf. And when Moses sees all this, he asks a question. He says, who is on the Lord's side? And guess what? All the sons of Levi, they all stand up and go with Moses. Later on, a few generations, or a few, few years later, as they're continuing to wander through the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 25, uh, sorry, in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24, you hear this story of Balaam, and uh, Balaam is enlisted to curse the people of God, but Balaam can't. <laughs> Every time he opens his mouth, he actually ends up blessing the people of God. But what ends up happening is that the Moabites, because they realize that they can't get Balaam to speak curses over God's people, what the Moabites do is they actually just send ladies into the camp to entice the men of God into false worship. And so in Numbers chapter 25, all of this is going on, this, this, these uh, uh, unholy alliances, if you will, and Phineas, who is Aaron's grandson of the tribe of Levi, he is zealous for the glory of God, and he does something very drastic to put a stop to it. And God says, that's what I'm talking about. When you see sin, to hate sin as much as I do, because it only creates a separation between me and my people. And so when God is saying, look, hey, my covenant with Levi, I want this covenant to continue, he's talking about this zeal for his glory that will call sin for what it really is and will run the opposite direction. Do we follow today? Yes or no? Yeah? And so here in, in uh, verse 5 it says, my covenant was with him one of life and peace. So all the priests from generation to generation, they were from the tribe of Levi, they were supposed to kind of, I mean, they were supposed to uphold this kind of zeal for the glory of God. This, this covenant, this commitment of life and peace because when we are zealous for the glory of God, it only results in life. It only results in peace, true peace, wholeness, nothing broken, nothing missing. That's the peace, shalom of the Bible. So my covenant was with him, one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, speaking of the priesthood, I gave them to him that he might fear me, so he feared me and was reverent before my name. God is describing his ideal. This is what leaders are supposed to do, to fear God, to give him glory. Notice he continues the ideal of what spiritual leadership looks like in verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips, and then it says, he walked with me. Just a closer walk, right? In other words, the priests, the, the spiritual leaders, they weren't just supposed to talk the talk. They were supposed to walk the walk. And this is what the sons of Levi were doing. It says, he walked with me in peace and equity. And as a result, notice the last part of verse 6, and turned many away from iniquity. You see, truth and knowledge, this was what God's ideal, God's expectation for the spiritual leaders, for the priesthood. 
He expected that truth and knowledge of who God is would be in their mouths and lived out in their lives. They were to be messengers of the Lord, both in precept and example, in word and in deed. But notice what the failure of the priests during Malachi's time is. In verse 7 it says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord. But, verse 8, you have what? Have departed. You have turned away. You have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. So instead of the covenant of Levi continuing, the covenant of Levi is corrupted. How? According to verse 8, it's when they have departed from the way. They cease to walk the walk. Sure, they were good at talking the talk. They're, they're good at transmitting the information verbally, but not in life. This was their failure. They departed. They turned aside from God's way. While they hold the position of spiritual leadership, their practice of spiritual leadership is something they could care less about. And the result, according to verse 8, that last line, you, sorry, the second to last line, it says, you have caused many to stumble at the law. And this is what happens. When leaders fall, many stumble. Do you see it? When the spiritual leaders falter, it actually proves fatal for the people of God. Why is that? Why? It's because by definition, leaders have followers. And if a leader is leading a life of sin, guess what the followers are going to do too? Do you, do you see, I mean, this is, this is common sense. As one, uh, um, one Christian blog actually puts it this way, it says, whether you are a leader in your church, your small group, or your family, when you allow sin to live in you, it will infect those who respect, admire, and imitate you. And that's true. Whether we hold an office or not, each one of us in our own right is a leader. We each have a sphere of influence, of moral influence, of spiritual influence. And so when we content ourselves with just going through the motions and talking the talk, but not walking the walk, it actually causes many to stumble. It causes many to stumble. Continuing on, it says in verse 10, uh, I'll read verse 9 here. It says, Therefore I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people, because you have not kept my ways, but you have shown partiality in the law. That word partiality, the, the literal term, it means like they've lifted it. Like they've lifted some parts, but they haven't lifted all of it. They've, sh they've shown partiality in the law. And in verse 10, it, it, this is kind of like the hinge point of the chapter where it uh, bridges both the, the, the beginning and the end. But the hinge point of the chapter actually focuses on who God is. Notice verse 10. It says, have we not all one father? The obvious answer is yes. Has not one God created us? The obvious answer is yes, right? This highlights who God is to us. He's our father. He is our creator. But he's highlighting who God is to us in order to highlight who we are to each other. Watch this. It says, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 
why do we deal treacherously with one another? You see, when we realize that we're all, that we, we can look to God as our Father, that means that we're all family. And if you've ever lived in a household with somebody, you realize that what one person goes through or does or experiences in your household, it affects you too. And in the household of faith, when leaders don't walk the walk, everyone is affected. There's a significant cause and effect. By profaning our covenant with God, when we are faithless to our commitment to God, we actually end up dealing treacherously with each other. When we don't give God our best, there are casualties. Literally, there are casualties in our spheres of influence and our, our relationships. And as verse 11 continues and onward to, through the end of the chapter, now God is going to start exposing the second undercurrent. So they, he's looked at the faltering spiritual leadership, the, the unfaithfulness of the priests, but now he's looking at, at something a little bit more specific, like how it is that the priests were profaning God's covenant. In verse 11 it says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution which he loves. That's how the New King James reads. And in other Bibles, it might say the Lord's holy sanctuary or the Lord's holy. And really what it's talking about is this, God had set up the sanctuary to be something sacred. God had set up the sanctuary to be the, the demonstration of how he dwells with humanity, of how he deals with sin and how he redeems the lost. But through their unfaithfulness, they had totally eclipsed all that God intended the sanctuary to demonstrate. It says they've profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. But notice how. It says he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Where in the world did this come from? <laughs> like, uh, you know, this is, this is one of those left hooks, those curveballs. You're like, I, I wasn't expecting this. If you understand the story, what's going on in, in Malachi's time is that the priests, and not just the priests, but all, uh, generally speaking, the men of Israel were kind of following suit after the spiritual leaders. But the spiritual leaders of the time, they were actually entering into unadvisable marriages. We'll say it lightly. Unadvisable marriages. It says he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now this is not about ethnic purity. This is about spiritual fidelity. When you, when you commit yourself uh, unequally, as uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 describes it, unequally, um, there's a sense of loyalties that, that cannot walk together. Uh, it doesn't take too long. You go back to the story of Solomon. Remember King Solomon? His story shows the, the drastic results of that. But it's not just this. It's not just this. Now, uh, if, if you understand the context, this remnant They've just returned from Babylon. Before Babylon, they were in Jerusalem trying to serve the Lord, but it was their issues just like this, their spiritual and marital unfaithfulness that actually led them to idolatry and exile in the first place. So they're actually returning to their vomit, so to speak. Okay? Uh, sorry, that was a little graphic. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but you get the idea. They're, they're going back. History is repeating itself. But there's a little bit more to this story. I want us to hang on to this because it's not just the fact that there's mixed marriages going on. 
What else? What else? It says, verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware. Like people are just doing this blatantly. They know what the consequences are. They know the history, but yet they're still going on. The rest of the verse, verse 12, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now notice, the people that are doing this unfaithfully, they're still going to bring their offerings. They're still going to worship. And notice they have the nerve in verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? These people who are going back to their old ways, they're still going to worship, and they're crying over the altar saying, why doesn't God accept our offering? They have the nerve, as one commentator says. They had become involved in mixed marriages with the daughter of a foreign god, and then had had the nerve to shed crocodile tears in emotional outbursts because their inferior sacrifices had not been accepted. Again, they're going through the motions. They're going through the motions. Check. Why isn't God hearing this? Because somewhere along the line, they hadn't taken it to heart. It hadn't been internalized. But the issue becomes even more clear. It's not, like I said, it's not just the fact that they've kind of intermixed and intermarried. It's the way they did it. It's the way they did it. Watch it. In verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What's going on here? They've entered into marriages via unlawful divorce. Like they've put away their wives of their, of their youth in order to enter into these unholy alliances. Do you see how this is a little bit more dirty. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is just like, this is wrong. How in the world could they do this? They, they forsook the wife of their youth, and, and God is reminded, they, that, that's your companion. You're knit together. That's a literal term. You're knit together. You're united. How could you dissolve that? And then go to these unholy alliances. And in verse 15, God's questioning is even uh, more passionate. It says, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? Wow. Powerful reminder that marriage is supposed to be oneness, right? And this oneness is by the power of the Spirit. Like when, when a husband and a wife say, I do, before God, God actually gives them a remnant of his Spirit to bring about a miracle of unity. Saying I do is not a formality. It's not just a legality. It's a miracle. They forgot that marriage is a miracle of oneness that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. And then the rest of the verse, God is describing the spiritual goal of this marriage oneness. And why one? The middle of verse 15. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. He seeks godly offspring. God's goal, God's goal in this spirit-driven oneness is to perpetuate the glory of God. Your marriage is not just a tax break. 
Your marriage is for the glory of God. Your kids are not just a tax break. (laughs) They are a heritage from the Lord to give glory to God from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. That's God's goal in the spirit-driven oneness. But the people in Malachi's day had totally lost that map. They lost it. And they had continued to give God their leftovers. God's passionate plea in the midst of all this to shake them up. In verse 15, it says, Therefore, take heed to your spirit. The word is protect, guard, stand watch, keep. Keep your spirit. Preserve it. It's the sense of keeping something within the bounds of its appropriateness, but it's also in the sense of keeping something like keeping the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God puts the man in the Garden of Eden to keep it. Same word, to keep that garden. Cultivate your spirit. Don't just keep it from the things that it shouldn't overgrow into, but cultivate it. Make sure that it grows into something beautiful. In your marriage, take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And notice how emotional God gets here. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Right? And and now we can can lift this verse absolutely and say, you know, absolutely God just, he's pained over divorce when he sees it. But in this context, I think uh, immediate application, he's, he's pained over the divorce and the things that motivated these kinds of divorces. Remember, they're, they're getting rid of their wives or their youth in order to jump into marriage with foreign uh, individuals, people who, daughter, daughters of foreign gods, it says. And the Lord hates what's going on. Why? Why in the world does he care? Why in the world does God care about it so much that he brings it right in the face of the, of the remnant right here in Malachi chapter 2? Why does he care? Because in Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 1, very beginning, right? God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made him male and female. So when, when God was creating humanity, when God was creating humanity, He wanted, on that sixth day of creation, he wanted to create something that imaged him. He wanted to create something that reflected his glory to the rest of creation. And when he chose what would reveal the glory of God, he did not choose a giraffe that talks. (laughs) Thanks, Jaden. That's money. (laughs) He did not reveal himself through through flowers that just, you know, that are beautiful, or what, you know, what he revealed himself, like his image, he said male, female, marriage. When he wanted something to reveal his full glory to the world, he chose man and a woman. This is my image. And then he told them, be fruitful and multiply. Marriage making family. And in that is seen the glory of God. Why does God care? Because his glory is being marred. This is not who I am, he says. 
Why does God care? Because marriage and the family, what it produces, is supposed to be what images God, what reveals the character of the all-loving, all-giving Godhead. Marriage is to be an earthly reflection, an earthly parallel of God's heavenly commitment to us. Let me say it again. Marriage is to be an earthly reflection of God's heavenly commitment to you and I. Do you realize that Jesus kind of casts himself in pictures like being the groom and we are his, his bride? In other words, God's relationship to us is that kind of oneness. And at any time we see a man and a woman, that is supposed to reflect God's love toward us. Anytime we see a, a man saying, hey, this is my companion, that's supposed to be God's commitment. We are his companion. And anytime that picture falters, God is pained because that somehow trickles down to the domino effect. It communicates that God is willing to throw us away. But that is not true. Can you understand why God gets riled up over this? What are you guys doing? What are you guys, that's my image. That's not my image. That's not my image. To treat marriage as something that's disposable, as in that context they were doing, it's just like, oh, yeah, uh, wife of the youth, I'm jumping here. No, to treat marriage as disposable falls horribly short of displaying the eternal nature of God's commitment to us and the infinite price of God's commitment to us. And it literally does violence to the character of God. Violence to the character of God. That's why in verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. It's doing violence to the character of God. And so he repeats himself, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. See, the fact that Israel could treat their marriage covenant so lightly is a reflection on how lightly they view the spiritual covenant between God and themselves. Just as easily as they abandon the literal wife of their youth, they feel that they can easily abandon their spiritual covenant with God and feel okay with it. No wonder the people neglected to give God their best. Do you see it? These were the undercurrents. They kind of led people to give God just leftovers because they felt like their commitment was something that they could easily wash their hands of or that God easily washes his hands of. But that's not the case. You see how going through the motions, whether in our spiritual leadership or in our spousal loyalty, it led to leaving God leftovers. And can you see why I said that this is challenging stuff? <laughs> There's something redemptive in this, a silver lining, so to speak. You know, Paul says that we should boast in our weaknesses so that the strength of God can be made perfect. Um, not to say that we should continue being weak, but, but there's something redemptive that through the shortcomings of this chapter, you know, the shortcomings of spiritual leaders and the shortcomings of uh, of, uh, of the marriages, 
There's something through this that we can appreciate the excellence of Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me explain here. I am thankful that Jesus is the faithful high priest. It's kind of in the contrast what's going on here that we really see the beauty of Jesus. I'm thankful that he is faithful to the covenant. I'm thankful that his walk matches his talk. I'm thankful that in Romans chapter 5 it says, through one man's obedience many were made righteous. Whereas in this case, through their disobedience, many were caused to stumble. Do you see what's going on? I'm thankful that we can trust Jesus. I'm thankful that we can turn to him. I'm thankful that we can look to him as the one that we can follow, learn from, and lean upon. That his word is what he does. I'm thankful for Jesus. He is our faithful high priest. I'm so thankful that Jesus is the faithful husband. The one who has given himself for his bride, though his bride has been unfaithful to the covenant vows, he has always, always been faithful to us. I'm thankful that the same oneness that a husband and wife share is the same oneness that he has made possible through blood that he shed and the spirit that he's poured out. I'm thankful that someday soon we will see our heavenly groom coming in the clouds of glory. I'm thankful that he will make good on the promise he gave some 2,000 years ago that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again (laughs) and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. I'm thankful for Jesus today. Even through the mess of the remnant, we can see the majesty of our Redeemer. Can you love a Savior like that? Can you trust a God like that? I want to connect some dots here really quickly, just as as we're kind of rounding things out. There is a connection between these two undercurrents, the the failures in ministry, the spiritual leadership, the failures in, in marriage. And I want to apply these things both broadly and specifically. Obviously, yeah, there is a specific word to people who are in positions of spiritual responsibility. Uh, people who are, you know, ministers, people who are um, holding offices in the church. There's a specific word to, <laughs> to, sh- to share here, but just because we may not be on the nominating committee report, it doesn't mean that this counsel to ministers does not apply to you and I. Do you hear what I'm saying? As we said earlier, we may not be leaders in a formal sense or in an official sense, but we are leaders in our own sphere of influence. We are ministers, maybe not in a technical, formal, official sense, but we are ministers of the gospel. We may not be priests, but God has called us a royal priesthood. Do you follow today, yes or no? Yeah. And so when we see the counsel here to, to ministry, we need to find ourselves in that story too. And, and yes, there are specific words to those who are in the covenant of marriage to be faithful to that. But whether or not you and I, you know, there may be some among us who aren't in a covenant marriage relationship who may be preparing for that or that may be part of their past experience or whatever the case might be. But still, the, the same heart principles there, you know, it, it affects our covenant marriage relationship with God. Do you follow today, yes or no? Yeah? 
Okay, so let's connect some dots here. Marriage and ministry. Ministry and marriage. What, how, how, did, how did these two things converge to create the situation that we found here in Malachi? Here's the thing. The one is upfront and public ministry, and the other is up close and personal <laughs> marriage. They both, they both are things that God is keenly interested in. Why? Because in these two arenas, in ministry and in marriage, the character of God has the greatest potential of being magnified or maligned. Do you follow that? In ministry and in marriage, these are two sensitive areas, even though one is way public and the other is very private. These are the two arenas in which the character of God has the greatest potential to be magnified or maligned. And God is keenly interested. Because of that, both of these, ministry and marriage, they must be treated reverently and responsibly. Just going through the motions in any of those will cause many to stumble. But when we give God our best in ministry and marriage, it turns many away from iniquity. You saw it there in verse 6, right? Uh, when when uh, the sons of Levi were doing their thing as they should, it says, He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. When we give our best in ministry and in marriage, it turns many away from iniquity and it reveals the glory of God that what he says he actually does, that he himself walks the walk and proves true to his word. When we give our best to ministry and to marriage, we reveal the very image of the God who loves us with an enduring, everlasting love. So no one would ever have reason to, to say what they said in Malachi chapter 1. Has God really loved us? No. When we give our best to ministry and marriage, people will say, God has loved us. So some practical takeaways. How, how do I give God my best? How do I not settle for just the motions? How do I give God our, my best in ministry or in marriage? Not just settle for the superficial. Let me say this. When it comes to ministry, here's number one. Focus on the family. And I'm not talking about a radio program by Chuck Swindoll, okay? <laughs> Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Focus on the family. In verse 10, just uh, if you have your Bible still open, in verse 10 it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another? Here's what I think God is reminding us. And when it comes to giving our best in ministry, we must recognize that if the creator is our father, then the community is my family. We can humbly embrace, when we focus on that family, the broad family, like, okay, that's my brother, that's my sister, what I do actually affects him or her. We can humbly embrace the influence God has entrusted each of us with or without a title or position or office. When we give God our best in our unique roles of responsibility and spheres of influence, then we realize that none of us is an island to ourselves. That we're all family. Okay, focus on the... We, we can choose to depart from the way 
and cause many to stumble, or we can choose to walk in God's way and turn many from iniquity. So if you're wanting to give God your best in ministry, here's one thing, focus on the family, meaning when you're tempted to depart from the way of God. When, you're, when you feel as though, you know, you're considering the options. When you're tempted to depart from the plain path of righteousness, focusing on the family means keeping the faces of your community fresh in your mind and asking yourself, how could I do that to my family? Did that make sense? There's something that I've uh, understood as I've um, begun to have beautiful children in my life. <laughs> that there are little parrots around. <laughs> that my supposedly independent actions have serious ramifications. And it's only when we begin to recognize our interrelatedness that we can really give our best in ministry. They not be necessarily be my biological kids. That may not necessarily be my biological brother or sister. But my actions do impact their ability to walk after God. And so what can, what can I say? I'll give my best in my position of responsibility, whether in the church or in the home, whether in a friendship or in a formal sense. So focus on the family. Does everybody catch that? Yeah? Focus on the family. How about in our marriage? What, what practical takeaway can we take from here? Simple phrase that God says twice over in this chapter, take heed to your spirit. Take heed to your spirit. It reminds me what Proverbs, I think it's 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Take heed to your spirit. In other words, keep it. Keep it. Like a flame or a fire. You know, the Song of Solomon uses just this powerful imagery of a, the flame of Yahweh. Okay, that's, that's what the affection is there. Keep it like a flame or fire. On the guarding side, you want to make sure that fire doesn't go anywhere else that it's not supposed to go. So keep your affection where it should be. Take heed to your spirit. Keep the flames of your affection from burning outside its boundaries. Fire is a beautiful thing. When it gets cold and chilly, you got a fireplace, awesome. Very romantic at times. But once it gets out of that fireplace, you don't want to be there. You follow. Keep the flames of your affection where it ought to be. And it'll warm those around it. Take heed to your spirit. Keep it like a flame of fire. On the growing side, keep the flames of your affection fueled. Cultivate companionship. Forge your friendship. I love how God says, don't you know, that's your companion. In the marriage covenant, you want to give your best. Fuel your friendship. You've been staring for hours at your work. You've been staring for hours at your TV. When was the last time you looked into the eyes of your spouse? Said, how are you? Forge your friendship. Fuel that flame. And the same can be applied spiritually. When was the last time you looked God in the eye? How are you? To know and be known. Fuel that flame. Don't let that flame go out 
anywhere else it shouldn't be. Is this, uh, is this practical enough? Can we take this away? Yeah? Here it is, plain and simple. God deserves our best because he has given his best. And so if you ever find yourself in your ministry or your marriage, whatever application you're finding yourself uh, to apply that in, focus on the family, take heed to your spirit. May the Lord help us that we would be the remnant that's revived, huh? You know, I want to pray today because there are, you know, there are ways in which the Holy Spirit is tugging on our hearts and putting this to, to application in our lives that, that maybe we don't see on the surface, but I know that God's word can transform. There may be marriages that are struggling here today, but God can heal. There may be relationships with God that, that you're, like, kind of willing to abandon, but God can restore and redeem them. There may be mistakes and missteps that you wish you could take over because you've seen the ripple effect. But God can reconcile that too. Shall we pray together? Yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you are honest with us. Oh Lord, we want to confess to you the shortcomings of our leadership and the shortcomings of our loyalties. Oh, Father, we want to take you up on the promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we, we don't want to, to just kind of smooth this over and say, oh, that's, that's not a big deal. And so, Lord, I pray that through the power of your grace, you would redeem us from our shortcomings. The things that even we have done blatantly, the ways in which we have departed from your way and turned others or caused others to stumble. Oh, Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient for that too. Right now, God, I want to pray for leaders in our church family. I want to pray for those who actually do hold specific formal office. And I pray that in their lives, you would work out genuine revival and reformation. Lord, may we walk with you closer each day than the day before. May our uh, living match our profession. Father, I also just pray for, for marriages in this household of faith. I pray, God, for reconciliation where it's needed. I pray for genuine communication where it's needed. I pray for grace and forgiveness where it's needed. I pray for fueling of affection where it's needed. Lord, I pray for genuine companionship and that we would truly take heed to our spirit. Thank you, God, that when we give you our best when we give our best to our ministry, when we give our best to our marriage, we're really giving you our best. And so please, take what we are. May we be an acceptable sacrifice to you. We pray this in Jesus' saving name. Amen. Amen.